Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 11. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north, round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. This is the word of the Lord. All right, everyone, grab your seats. In a culture of horrific exhaustion and fatigue, we settle in and we become still here on this Sunday morning together, just a collection of souls, a community of people seeking your face, coming alongside hundreds, thousands, millions of Christians, all of whom we are intertwined with in soul and spirit in the dance of the Trinity, reaching all the way back through history and all the way into the future, we today, our small piece, we contribute to you, praise and glory and honor. And in a society of such caustic cynicism, we seek to be a people of joy and resolve, resilience and strength, not by gritting our teeth, but by resting, receiving your love. So go before us now, and as we make our journey through Kohelet, the teacher, the assembler, the philosopher, the cynic, may we hear clearly and be corrected in our thoughts. May we know you truly and be loved by you experientially, that we would be your children, beloved, sent on mission in this world to heal the cynicism to bring rest to the weary. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, for those of you that have been here for some time, you know that 2023, we have committed to two postures. We're adopting two postures through this year. The first is rest as a way of being. Don't think sitting down on a beach at Mazatlan, Mai Tai in hand, beach umbrella overhead, rest. Think rest of soul. <laughs> Somebody goes, oh. <laughs> Think rest of soul that is deeper and truer and more satisfying, rooted in the practice of Sabbath, Jesus our Sabbath, but embodying that. And so in March, just by way of reminder, we're going to be doing church-wide trainings around the practice of Sabbath. We finally got a location. We're going to be meeting at Communion Church. My buddy Lance, they've got an incredible space. 6.30 to 8.30, all through the month of March, we're going to do a four-part module using John Mark Comer's Practicing the Way material on Sabbath. And so if you're not familiar with Sabbath or you've been practicing Sabbath for many decades, come join us every Wednesday evening, Communion Church, 6.30 to 8.30. Sabbath will be the embodied rootedness as we develop rest 
as a way of being. Lots to talk about. Sabbath will be an anchor for our church for the rest of the life of this church. It's in the DNA of our church. The second posture, does anybody know what it is? Resilience. Resilience as what? Ah, good. Resilience as a way of doing. Rest as a way of being. Resilience as a way of doing. And for us to build resilience in a culture of cynicism, we believe there's two challenges in this culture for modern Christians, exhaustion and cynicism. We're going to spend the next, as I said, four to six months uh, sitting at the feet of maybe the chief of all cynics, uh, Koheleth, as he was called in the Hebrew. And so as we begin the book of Ecclesiastes this morning, it is crucial for you to understand that the book is actually capturing two voices, not just one, two voices. We have the first voice is Koheleth. Koheleth is the Hebrew word for teacher. I'll talk a little bit more about that here in just a moment. And Koheleth, he operates like a mascot of sorts for the modern urbanite here in 2023. Koheleth is a representative, and he gives voice to the modern human's frustrations and perspectives. And as you see, you will find echoes of your own frustrations and your own perspectives throughout the teachings of Koheleth. By the way, the Hebrew transliteration of Koheleth is difficult. Some translate it Kohelet, and some translate it Koheleth. Depending on which scholar I've been reading, I say Koheleth or Kohelet. So just know that they're one and the same person. The second voice that we have throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, really only at the beginning and the end of the book, is the author himself. The author himself. And the author is really a sophisticated pastoral guide. The author himself is using Koheleth's words to prompt his community towards deeper thought and to help them reflect while trying to reorient them to broader, more true perspectives from his place and his context. So we have Koheleth, our mascot, representative, and we have the author, our mentor, reorienting us in a broader, truer perspective. Let's meet our mascot here at the very beginning, verse 1, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, the words of Koheleth. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now the teacher, many have assumed for centuries that the teacher, because he declares himself to be the son of David, king in Jerusalem, was Solomon. This is very, very unlikely. It's quite a rabbit hole for us to travel down. We don't have time to do it this morning, and this isn't a class on critical thinking in Hebrew literature. So suffice it to say, the author is most likely representing himself as a... As a uh, an image of the, the rulers of the kings of Israel. He's, and this was very common in ancient historical literary device. He is representing the lineage of David's kings who ruled and reigned over Jerusalem. And so he is, for us and for our sake, to apply this book to us, Koheleth is a voice of an affluent, that's you and I, culturally and politically powerful, that's most of us in this room, highly educated, that's most of us in this room. This is Koheleth, our mentor the teacher, the assembler, the gatherer. Now, as we begin to get into the actual words of Koheleth, it is so important that you recognize Koheleth is a wisdom teacher, but he is a teacher who is struggling with the traditions of his people. In many ways, Koheleth in the book of Ecclesiastes is our journey into a person's deconstruction process. Koheleth is deconstructing his faith, traditions, assumptions throughout the entire book. And he's deconstructing in a healthy way. For those of you that haven't been around neighbors very long, we actually 
encourage you to deconstruct. But we encourage you to deconstruct honestly and down to bedrock, down to the guts, down to the roots of your very deepest belief systems. Because once you deconstruct all the way down, if you're deconstructing truly and honestly, you're going to have to wrestle with the resurrection of Jesus. And the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. I'm glad for you to deconstruct the Bible all the way down to its bones because what you find there is the living flesh of Jesus alive, raised from the dead. Koheleth is in the process of deconstructing his community's faith assumptions and traditions. Koheleth is actually standing up like most of you, especially if you're a millennial or younger, and challenging the perceived and long-held teachings of his community. Koheleth is actually questioning the validity of his community's beliefs when he looks around at his experiential reality. His community teaches one thing, but his experiential reality is something very different. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Just raise your hand if that sounds like something you're wrestling with. Yeah. So as we work our way through the book of Koheleth, it's very important that we learn as Bible students to read Koheleth carefully and to read him critically. Talk about here just for a moment, carefully reading him. Like any effective thought leader, or like a good philosopher, Koheleth mixes good and bad. He mixes beautiful and ugly. He is a very sophisticated and very nuanced thinker. And so there is a lot of gray, pluses and minuses, all throughout Koheleth's ideas, because the human experience is complicated and nuanced, and never black and white. There's so much gray in what we deal with. So we need to read him carefully, and we also need to read Koheleth critically because Koheleth's teachings are designed to disturb. His thoughts, and the author brings Koheleth's thoughts to his community to stir questions, to, to seek for resolution. He wants to stir up that tension in us because Koheleth intentionally leaves things hanging. Koheleth is not the book to read if you're looking for three steps to your best life now. Trust me, I've been meditating in this book for months now. The bulk of his themes are in a very minor key, and they never resolve. And so this requires real focus on your parts. Here on these Sunday mornings, you will need to lean in and listen carefully and apply Koheleth critically and carefully. And if you don't, if you just take him at face value and Koheleth says, therefore I do, you will be a very, very depressed person. Okay? So we're going to be re reading critically by doing this. We're going to ask these questions as we read his thoughts over these coming months. Where am I thinking like this right now? Where am I lined up with what this guy's saying? How does my life experience contrast or align with Koheleth's in this moment as an affluent, politically and culturally powerful person? How is my perspective right now different or similar to Koheleth's? Where am I like, yeah, I agree with you? Or where am I like, I, I, don't, I don't know. I think you're a little bit off there. How does the rest of the Bible and Jesus see this issue? We're going to do our best to stay right in the center of Koheleth, but we need a biblical theology. We need Genesis to Revelation to help us interpret Koheleth and not get lost in the weeds. Is Koheleth's or my perspective seeing through Jesus's perspective? All the same God, Old Testament and New Testament, but Jesus is our master. We are apprenticing under him, not Koheleth. So we have to have Jesus help us correct Koheleth where we find ourselves really struggling. Now, 
if that's our mascot, if he's representative of the voice of the modern urbanite, then our mentor, we meet him only in verses 1 through 2, chapter 1, 1 through 2. Some scholars would say all the way through verse 11. This is a bunch of other Hebrew deep rabbit trail that's impossible to get into this morning. Suffice it to say, the very opening lines are the author introducing us to, in third person, the teacher. Ecclesiastes 1, 2. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Then we meet our author again. After we've listened to Kohela through the entirety of the book, we get to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, and the author steps back in, and he's like wiping the sweat off of his brow. He's like, that was rough. See, the teacher, he says, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Not only was the teacher wise, notice that third person there in the English translation, but he also imparted knowledge to the people he pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. If you think of Kohela and the author himself, like you've gone to a philosophy class, so every Sunday morning, in part, we're going to be sitting through a philosophy class. And it's not philosophy 101. We're, this is 500-level philosophy stuff. And the author, the author, think of him as your philosophy professor. And he stands up and he says, thus the words of Nietzsche, son of Karl Nietzsche, professor in Prussia, God is dead. And then the professor opens up the gay science, which has nothing to do with our queer community friends. The gay science was the first place where the God is dead phrasing from Nietzsche came about, gay having to do with delight and joy. And then the professor goes on and he reads the entirety of the work of Nietzsche, where this God is dead phrase originated from. He reads it to his class, not making any interpretations, not making any applications, and then he closes Nietzsche's work And he says, you see, Nietzsche says, God is dead. What do you think? Class dismissed. (laughs) To help us keep our bearings every single week, because this is what the author is doing with Koheleth, to help us keep our bearings through this book and to keep us centered on the broader truths of Christianity and the Bible, what we're going to do is we're going to do a public corporate reading to center ourselves and to cap off each week's teachings. So we're going to read Koheleth critically and carefully, and then we're going to cap off with these two liturgical readings, which are words from our author and words from Jesus himself. Would you guys all read this with me? It'll be up on the screens for you. This is the words of our author, our mentor. Together, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. And now our master and our king, Jesus. Teacher, Which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Excellent. We will cap off each week's teachings with that, and then we will partake of communion, remembering the covenant and promise that our king made to us, that he kept commandments for us, that we could keep his commandments for the sake of this world and the well-being of our souls. The big idea of the book, Hevel, Hevel. Can you all say Hevel? Hevel, Hebrew scholars, all of you. Hevel. This is the name given to the brother who was murdered by Cain, Cain and Hevel, the one whose life was short the one whose life was a mist, a vapor. The literal meaning of hevel, it's somewhat difficult to get across in English, hence so many different English translations. At its root, hevel means whiff or puff or steam or smoke or vapor. It refers to anything that is superficial or ephemeral or insubstantial or incomprehensible. And so hevel for, for Koheleth 
is this world that cannot be grasped and it cannot be controlled. One of my favorite translations of this was a Hebrew scholar named Robert Alter. And he picks up on the idea, do you guys remember our studies on the spirit and the spirit who breathes into us, the, the ruach? Do any of you remember that? So we breathe in ruach. We breathe in the spirit of God and he gives us life. Well, Alter would say that Koheleth is focusing on the exhale. He translates Hevel mere breath, the opposite of ruach. What Koheleth was looking at was life through expelling instead of taking in. He was looking at life through loss instead of gain. He was looking at the endings instead of the beginnings. Koheleth was looking at life through death instead of life itself. Now, the primary question that Koheleth asks What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. What do people gain from what we're doing in this world? What is the point of all of this? Why, kiddos, are you in college spending all that money getting your degrees? Why, brothers and sisters, are you laboring 50, 60, 70, 80 hours a week at your career? Why do we paint pictures? Why do we make sculptures? Why do we cook food other than to feed ourselves? Why do we make things beautiful? Why are we doing what we are doing? Koheleth asks that question a thousand times over, over and over. And what you'll discover as we meditate in Koheleth over these next few months is you will meet Koheleth in your soul and you will meet Koheleth in your workplace and in your classroom every single day. How many of you guys have seen Dave Lowry's 2017 film, A Ghost Story? Anybody? Yeah. So those of you that have seen it, you know. Incredible, incredible film. And what Lowry did is he puts this existential angst front and center, this question of what are we doing? The movie is like the cinematic journey through the mind of Kohelet, although I'm pretty sure that Lowry wasn't thinking of Ecclesiastes when he wrote the film. There is this very powerful scene There's this party happening in this home. So imagine right now there's a party, there's rave music going on, there's people doing drugs in the corner, people drinking, dancing, and then there's a group of drunk people sitting around a table and they're having a conversation. And one of the party goers, she wants to write a book and she mentions this desire to write a book. So another drunk guy launches into a monologue And he launches into this monologue and he echoes the voice of Koheleth all the way through this monologue. He puts right into front and center the existential angst and the meaninglessness that we're all trying to avoid. I'm going to read this monologue in entirety for us. It's about four, four and a half minutes because it is so good. But it will agitate us the way that Koheleth intends to agitate us. It'll be up on the screens for you so I don't have to do a dramatic reading this morning. Let me take a sip of coffee. Just fill this scene now with a party. There's rave music going, drugs, dancing, four or five drunk people sitting around the table. I'd like to write a book. And then this drunk dude launches into his monologue. Well, here's how I'll break it down. A writer writes a novel. A songwriter writes a song. A symphonist writes a symphony, which is maybe the best example because all the best ones were written for God. So tell me what happens if Beethoven's writing his ninth symphony Suddenly, he wakes up one day and realizes that God doesn't exist. So suddenly, all these notes and chords and harmonies that were intended to, you know, supersede the flesh, he realizes, oh, it's just physics. So Beethoven says, shoot, God doesn't exist. I guess I'm writing this for other people. It's just nuts and bolts now. He didn't have any children, as I can recall, but if he did, now a fellow partygoer sitting at the table chimes in and says, he had a nephew. Okay, great. So, so he writes for him. Another lady chimes in sitting around the table. Or he wrote for the immortal 
beloved. Yes, fine, fine. He writes for whoever that was. But let's leave love out of this and let's wrap this all up under the blanket of someone thinking this. This is something that they'll be remembered for. And they did. And we do. And sure enough, we do what we can to endure. We build our legacy piece by piece and maybe the whole world will remember you and maybe just a couple of people. But you do what you can to make sure you're still around after you're gone. And so we're still reading this book. We're still singing the song. And kids remember their parents and their grandparents. And everyone's got their family tree. And Beethoven's got his symphony. And we've got it too. And everyone will keep listening to it for the foreseeable future. But that's where things start breaking down. Because your kids, your kids are all going to die. At this point, the guy yells out to the party, how many of you guys have got kids? A couple people raise their hands. Your kids are going to (laughs) die. Yours too, yours too, they're all going to die, and their kids will die, and so on and so on. And then there's going to be one big tectonic shift. Yosemite will blow, and the western plates will shift, and the oceans will rise, and the mountains will fall, and 90% of humanity will be gone. One fell swoop. This is just science. Whoever's left will go to higher ground, and social order will fall away, and we will revert to scavengers and hunters and gatherers. But maybe there's someone, someone who one day hums a melody they used to know, and he starts to hum the ninth symphony of Beethoven in the scene. And it gives a little bit of hope. Mankind's on the verge of being wiped out, but it keeps going a little bit longer because someone hears someone else hum a melody in a cave and the physics of it in their ear make them feel something other than fear or hunger or hate. And mankind carries on and civilization gets back on track. And now you're thinking you're going to finish that book, but it won't last because by and by, the planet's going to die. In a few billion years, the sun will become a red giant and it'll eventually swallow Earth whole. This is a fact. Now, maybe by that point, we'll have set up shop on some completely different planet. Good for us. Maybe we figured out a way of carrying with us all these things that matter. They've got a photocopy of the Mona Lisa out there. Someone sees it, mixes a little bit of alien dirt with some spit, paints something new, and the whole thing keeps going. At this point in the scene, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony begins to get louder over the rave music, as this man goes on. But even that doesn't matter. Because even if some form of mankind carries some recording of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony all the way into the future, the future's going to hit a brick wall. The universe will keep expanding, and eventually, it's going to take all matter with it. Everything you've ever strived for, everything you and some stranger on the other side of the planet share with some future stranger on some entirely different planet without even knowing it, everything that ever made you feel big or stand up tall, it'll all go. Every atom in this dimension will be pulled apart. And then all these shredded particles will contract again and the universe is going to suck itself back into a speck too small for any of us to see. So you can write a book, the pages will burn. You can sing a song and pass it down. You can write a play and hope that folks will remember it, keep performing it. You can build your dream house, but ultimately, none of that matters. Happy Sunday. (laughs) Koheleth asks, along with all of our culture, what are we going to gain from all of our labors, which we toil under the sun for? Generations come and generations go. He stirs up that existential angst. Here is the key to making our way through this man's abysmal thoughts at certain points. The key phrase to catch with Koheleth is he says, under the sun. 
29 times Koheleth refers to life under the sun. I don't have it on our notes up there, but write it down in your notes. It's key for understanding Koheleth. Under the sun, life under the sun. One of my professors from my master's degree, Ray Lubeck, he talked about Koheleth being so bitter and angsty because he could only see, he looked at life through life as being only under the sun. This was Koheleth's shorthand way of saying, I look at life and this is all there is, but there's nothing after this. Does that make sense? Under the sun, all there is is what's under the sun. There isn't heaven, there isn't hell, there isn't anything beyond this. And Koheleth holds this very particular and unique perspective in all of ancient Near Eastern wisdom literature, and especially within the Bible. He sees life only through the lens of this life. And so when we begin to see this world through the lens of this is all there is compared to this is life, and then there's life after this life, those are two radically different ways of seeing our experiences. I was going to try to use the illustration of one of us puts on sunglasses that have red tint, and one of us puts on sunglasses that have green tint. It's much more extreme than that. When we see the world from these two different realities of life under the sun versus life under the sun and then life after life under the sun, it's two completely different realities that we're looking at. One is short and brutal and meaningless, and the other one is moving towards a goal and purposeful, a telos. Like most moderns, Koheleth's perspective is focused solely on this life, what this life can give to him, afford him, and the devastation that death brings because there is nothing after this. He sounds so modern because he so vividly captures the despair of a world that is either misunderstood and misinterpreted or abandoned God completely. So Koheleth is looking through history and into the future, humans coming and going, empires rising and falling, loving and losing, living and dying. And all the while, the mountains stand tall and the oceans crash against the shores. The earth remains, he says. And so what this prompts in Koheleth is this poem of lament. Koheleth doesn't see beauty and grandeur in creation at all. What Koheleth sees when he looks at the tops of the mountains and the sunrises is he sees an immovable testimony to his impermanence. So the section that follows, verses 5 through 7, is this very dense and artistically powerful poem where Koheleth piles up word repetitions and images, and there's tons of active, it's all active casings in the verbs. There's just a ton of movement in this following passage. And it's designed specifically for the reader to be reading it and have the sensation of like movement and power and intensity and accomplishment. All the while, the actual words are saying, there's absolutely, this is going nowhere. This is producing nothing. Koheleth sees creation as a cosmic hamster wheel, and he decides he's going to call it for what it is, Pointless and meaningless. Vapor. The sun rises and the sun sets, Ecclesiastes 1, 5 to 7, and hurries back to where it rises. The literal translation, it pants. Koheleth paints the picture of the sun just striving and panting to get to the other side to set, only to come up and do it again, and to strive and to come up and do it again. The wind blows to the south and to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. And so the longer we meditate in this book, the more deeply we're going to be struck by the parallels between this ancient philosopher and us. Let me speak to this for just a moment. Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor. Uh, if you're super nerdy, you're going to be familiar with his work. It's super dense. The secular age is sort of his tome. He says that we moderns, we live in what he calls a disenchanted age, a disenchanted age. 
Don't think Disney princess movies when I use the language of enchantment and disenchantment. Think more like this. Taylor is referring to societies, modern societies, collective loss or ignore, uh, ignorance of transcendency and mystery and spirituality and, and loss of recognition of these unfor, unforeseen forces, unseen forces. Disenchantment is the loss of spirituality, the lens of spirituality. 500 years ago, before the scientific revolution, we humans collectively lived in an enchanted way. We understood ourselves to be porous. This is all Taylor. Porous, interacting with unseen forces. The spirits interacted with us, and we interacted with them. Whereas we moderns, we believe ourselves to be buffered. There's a separation. We don't interact with the unseen because most of us don't believe that it actually exists or is doing anything. Koheleth was disenchanted like the moderns. Creation didn't speak to him of beauty and grandeur. It was just the repetitive machinery of a world in which God had placed him. Now, really interesting note about Koheleth. This is so important. He never uses the name Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, the, the main name that God gives to himself throughout the Old Testament. He never uses that name throughout the entire book. He only refers to God as Elohim, which is a very generic, sort of broad-brushed statement about who God is. So in many ways, Koheleth has only part of who God is as he looks at the world around him. He doesn't have the fullness of the God who is compassionate, the God who is merciful, the God who created in Genesis, and the God who is ending in Revelation. All Koheleth has is this, well, I believe there's something out there. Doesn't that sound like a modern statement about God? This is Koheleth's vision of God, Elohim. He never brings in Yahweh, compassionate, merciful, personal, telos, purposeful, never. And so he sees the world through this vague sort of distorted image of who God is. And so do we. Coming back to science, the scientific renaissance over the last 500 years, friends, has produced some of the most magnificent miracles in all of human history. I personally would not want to live without airplanes or nuclear power or Tylenol. I'm very thankful for all of those things. And so we know more now, we do more, we live longer, we have more comfortable lives because of science. But science, for most moderns, has also unintentionally squeezed God out of our daily sense of the world. With all the gains of modernity, there has been this tragic loss because science, science does not allow for the influence of unseen spiritual reality beyond the seen physical reality that we dwell in. Quick philosophy of science lesson here. This is not because science is evil. Science is not moral. Everybody needs to understand that. Science is not the virtuous good of humanity. That philosophically is impossible because of what science is. Science, friends, science, science is the study. It's the, it's the testing and the measuring and the accounting for things that are empirical and measurable and testable and retestable. We need science, but science is limited in its capacity to explain human existence and experience. And so science necessarily, it necessarily, not in a moral way, but because of what it is, reduces the cosmos and human experience to what can be seen, measured, tested, and retested. What is glaringly missing from the scientific worldview is transcendence and metaphysics and mystery and spirituality and God. Because those things cannot, by what they are, be measured, tested, and retested. Everybody tracking with this? Okay, I don't want this to become a lecture, but it's important that you guys grasp this piece. Now, as science has developed... Honest scientists, many of whom are sitting in this room right now, they have come to a place where they will say, look, my discipline tells you what is happening, 
and my discipline can tell you how things are happening. But the discipline of science cannot answer why these things are happening or what they mean, okay? But because humanity is inherently spiritual, and we live in this inherently spiritual cosmos, humans have, our society especially, is trying to cram all of our understanding of creation within this solely scientific framework. And so in the late modern West, science has begun to evolve into what many are just calling scientism. Scientism. There's science, and then there's scientism. Scientism is a, is a materialistic religion that attempts to answer all the questions of human experience while dogmatically denying spiritual, metaphysical, transcendent realities. And so that aquarium that we swim in, friends, it puts a filter on us just like Koheleth, where we either completely ignore the existence of God or we have a misconstrued sort of limited vision of who God is and then we begin to view our world through only our five senses because we can't measure, test, and retest the notions of demons and angels and spirits or God. We are disenchanted. And a disenchanted world is a cold, random, accidental cosmic machine just grinding up everything that we exist in without end, without meaning, without beauty. Because what is beauty without somebody to behold it and define it? Think of it this way. When you go out to sunset cliffs, through a disenchanted lens, a sunset isn't beautiful and inspiring. It's just the reflection of light particles particles being interpreted by a set of neurons in our brain that create a cascade of hormones, of chemicals, into our central nervous system, evoking sensations. And even all of those things are just continued accidental combinations of chemicals that will return to nothing, and we're all nothing. And so like Koheleth, creation with the wrong understanding of the creator, or in our case, no creator at all, reduces a million miracles to meaninglessness, cruel accidents. This isn't two different pairs of sunglasses, friends, but I want you to know that we all are having to decide which lens through which we look at the world. And you need to be aware that you are wearing a lens. And every single day from the time you wake up till the time you go to sleep, you are giving a message that paints a lens over your eye that sits in this space, scientism. Science is real, so say the placards in the front yards. As we begin our extended meditation in the book, we're going to circle back to this fundamental question over and over, and we're almost done for the morning. Am I viewing creation and my existence with the proper understanding of who God is? Or have I misunderstood God and therefore I can't see reality as it really is? This is at the root of so much of our pain. It's at the root of my pain. God is love. God is all-knowing. God is good. God is in control. My life is in chaos. It doesn't feel very loving. Is God in control? And so if I take my misconstrued understandings and expectations of God and then I see my world through it, of course I become like Koheleth. I become bitter and cynical and angry. But the minute, after 15 minutes of silence, just sitting there telling the Lord, I trust you, and I open my eyes, and for the briefest moment, I'm able to see even the most horrific pain of this world through a God who is compassionate and kind and caring and sent his son to die and resurrect on my behalf. For just a brief moment, I'm able to see somehow in the cosmic wisdom of this creator, there is goodness and control in all of this that's leading to flourishing for all of the universe. And then the world and my flesh and Satan put back on Kohelet's lens, and I go back to the wrestling match. It's Christianity, friends. You're okay. You're okay. I know you think you're losing your faith and you're walking away from the church. You are not. You are living Christianity, wrestling 
walking, talking, raging, resting, rejoicing. It's the human experience. Kohala says it's vapor. Our mentor has otherwise to say. And so in a disenchanted, godless perspective, of course there's nothing new. Of course there's no new innovation or new creation. Of course there's no anticipation, no purpose. And this is what Koheleth caps it off with. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. There you have it. Six months of this guy. <laughs> and he will give voice, I think, to each of us. And I, I want to encourage you. He'll give voice to your coworkers and your fellow students, too. Koheleth is a great book to listen to. Because the modern person who's an unbeliever can come in and say, this guy gets me. Wow. But our intention is really to come back to his deconstructive process and remember that Koheleth's words aren't the final words. Each week, we've got to return to our mentor, and we've got to let our mentor speak to us truthfully. Our mentor, the author, and our mentor, Jesus. Would you all read with me again now, Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. As we work our way through the book of Koheleth, I may take us down a beautiful philosophical rabbit hole and we'll explore something called an epistemology of love. In layman's terms, how do we know who we are? How do we know things? Jesus tells us we know things out of love. Koheleth's love had grown cold in his troubled view of the world. Our goal is to have our love grow resilient as we trust and as we obey. Father, as we now gather around the table of Jesus, a community of needy, hungry, humbled, confused, aching souls. You are not upset with our deconstruction. You're not upset with us. Lord, you've given us the gift of science. Late Western moderns were just a bunch of science nerds. We love it. Test, retest, hypothesize, test, retest, theory. You can tell us what the sun is, this burning nuclear ball of flame. You can't tell us what it means, that it warms our skin and tends to the green vines and the fruit of the field nourishes the systems, cause the wind and the streams to go round and about, a gift to creation. Science could never tell us that, but the Spirit does. Spirit, come. Spirit, I pray that you would guard these modern-day Koheleths from bitterness and cynicism and that you would open our souls to not only call you Elohim, but to call you the God who sees, the God who provides, the God who tends, the Good Shepherd, 
the creator of our souls. And for the ones who today come in with a wounded and fearful war going on in their hearts, give them a moment of reprieve today as we reflect and as we come to communion. Give them a moment of reprieve. Take, Lord, their eyes and give them new creation eyes. Not just new sunglasses through which to see, but a whole new reality. The kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Inaugurated.